0: The LexisNexis Communities Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Chip Merlin of the Merlin Law Group on the environmental, insurance, and wildlife implications of the Gulf oil spill. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. As founder and president of Merlin Law Group with offices in Tampa, Houston, Coral Gables, and West Palm Beach. Chip Merlin has dedicated his practice to the representation and advocacy of insurance policyholders in disputes with insurance companies in Florida, Mississippi, Texas, and nationwide. Since 1983, Chip has served as a plaintiff's attorney with a focus on commercial and residential property insurance claim disputes and bad faith insurance litigation. Chip publishes the property insurance coverage law blog, which is one of the LexisNexis insurance law community's top 50 insurance law blogs, and was also honored as one of the insurance law community's policyholder attorneys of the year in 2008. Chip is representing Florida property owners in a class action against BP, Transocean, and Halliburton that was filed May 4th, and he'll be one of the lead counsel in the anticipated MDL litigation. He spoke to LexisNexis legal editor Karen Yotis about the effects of the Gulf oil spill, subsequent lawsuits and insurance and other implications.
1: A lot of people are saying that this is changing It's a wake-up call and it's changing a lot of people's beliefs.
2: I'm an attorney that sells ideas and concepts. I'm, I'm a trial attorney and many times I, I've got causes and I'm talking to even my opponents and they don't necessarily believe what we have to say and it's those belief systems. I, I know that there are a lot of people that strongly believe that, that we we should have been drilling more oil, and that oil would make the country less dependent upon um, certain strategic national security interests. As a matter of fact, and for a while, and lately, if you read a lot of the press, and you know, people make fun of environmentalists as tree huggers and things like that. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, our politicians and a lot of leaders are clamoring to be seen and known as as environmentalists and those concerned with uh, safety and, and the habitat because it's politically expedient to do so, but there's been some significant belief system change within otherwise very, you know, what I would call, you know, hardcore non-environmentalists because for the first time they see what the devastation, you know, can bring about as a result of destruction of the environment and how much the environment, you know, can mean, to people's livelihoods in an economic sense. When fishermen can't fish, the person that worked at the marina that takes care of those fishing fleets can't take care of those fishing boats. The gentleman who's calling me from uh, uh, Houston, who has a wholesale distribution warehouse that takes care of shrimp that then gets exported by distributors that warehouse the stuff there, you know, he's out of business. Those distributors are wondering where they're going to go make cover all of a sudden. And it goes on down the line when I have a client of mine who's a actually one of the lead counsels in our in our plaintiff class actions that tells me that one day she has twenty five thousand dollars worth of cancellations, you know there are people who are um, renting out their units in that condominium association that now all of a sudden don't have the money to pay for their mortgages and so those right. banks you know, that are holding the mortgage you know might be hurt. The guy who operates the a convenience stand that's selling beer, pretzels, and suntan lotion right there next to the pool, his business might be well way off. We represent people that put out the uh, beach cabanas and stuff like that, and they told me that their business this week is down 80% over year after year, you know, for the same week last year, down 80% just as a result of and the only thing they can think of is everybody canceling and not coming down to the panhandle of Florida you know, for tourism. And so, so you have fishing, tourism that banks. It's, everybody can get affected as a result of the destruction of the environment.
1: Sure. but in given all these various types of businesses, types of individuals, I mean, you've pretty much described a number of different lifestyles along the coast in that area of Florida. How do you define the class in your class action? How do you define that?
2: Well, I think that there will be a number of classes and subclasses, and... If you want to see a, a, a fantastic you know, set of the various types of subclasses there might be, you could actually go to the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, and in the law itself it starts defining who the claimants might be. And it starts right there as the United States government, then the state governments, then the municipalities, and all the political subdivisions. It talks about in the act itself and in the Code of Federal Regulation, the various proofs to be need from the various types of businesses as well as the types of businesses that might not be able to get paid so that you, you would know that if you sell the recreational fisherman gas and that person might go out and, and fish but they can't do it because oil is out there that particular business might have a loss but the recreational fisherman uh, doesn't have a loss because it's not economic it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing how well that act actually spells out the various type of claimants but we had hired a consultant this week that even talked about an Exxon Valdez claim that one of the claims that was approved was a, a supermarket out in Japan who didn't have fish roe to sell uh, to Japanese customers, and they had been purchasing Alaskan fish roe for years uh, before that oil spill. So you know, the, it is a very broad, under the federal law, ability for claimants and different types of claimants to bring direct and and somewhat indirect claims as a result of economic loss.
1: Well, you've got a lot of different practice areas bumping up against each other here. you got insurance, you got environmental law, you have real estate law, you have choice of law issues that are probably going to bubble up in all of this. Do you envision any choice of law issues that might arise over this? Do you think we'll get to that now? I, I, we didn't get to it in, in Katrina actually because people's houses are turned to slats. People will lose their houses here too, but over time, not, in, not right away like they did when a big storm hit. So, Do you think we'll see some different sort of legal wrangling because of the Um,
2: differences? There was going to be so much legal wrangling by the various attorneys and and the various lawsuits brought. Uh, Choice of law is interesting. The conflict of laws is is something a lot of people don't take in law school. I I was published as a law student on my law review with a uh, Florida Supreme Court decision involving conflict of laws. And and even at the time, Mm -hmm. I thought it was very esoteric and it doesn't get easier as we get older and we see how complex matters can can become, but federal law will, will be applicable with respect to the Oil Pollution Act, so that's easy. Where, where you get into conflict the law issues is each of the various states and how the oil impacts actually various types of plaintiffs you know, will definitely come up from Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and now Florida certainly are all impacted, and it might have an okay. impact even on state court claims, and it's important to understand that the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 specifically indicates that it does not preempt and that the state court claims survive. And from that viewpoint, there's, even without proving willful conduct or gross negligence, which is required to bust through the caps in the uh, National Act, that the state, acts don't, uh, state causes of action don't have those. So I'm certain choice of laws can be a a huge issue and a recurrent issue as we go through this.
1: You anticipated my question when you when you mentioned <clears throat> busting through the cap. I think the Oil Pollution Act, doesn't it cap liability now at $75 million or something? And I, I know they got this bill in Congress to raise it to $10 billion, but even if they do that, do you think that we're going to have ex post facto prohibition there?
2: I'm, I'm certain that would be raised by the, um, the Council for the Re- Responsible Spillers. And spillers. In this particular case, the $75 million limitation of liability can be defeated by showing a gross negligence or willful misconduct. Many of my environmental lawyer friends were very quick to point to the fact that insurance, I mean, the oil lobby successfully lobbied uh, against having a requirement of the acoustic shutoff valves that may or may not have actually stopped this particular Um, incident Mm -hmm. ever happening, and and actually some have indicated that the failure to place such a device, knowing what the consequences would be of a failure such as we got, and the grave consequences would constitute a basis for punitive damages under most states. So um, that's certainly something we're going to look for. There's a a number of various factors that that go into this, but there was a very similar oil spill that happened just last year in, in Australia off the... Northwest coast and the northwest coast of Australia does not have a very heavily populated uh, area whatsoever, and, and many people don't know about it. The Australian government was supposed to have announced it, the results of that investigation the last week of April, and for some reason it got postponed, and we're busy trying to get it. But it was a very similar oil rig, deep water. Not long after they started operating it, a blowout occurred. And they did not have an acoustic shutoff valve there either, unlike some countries where they mandate the use of those. It's certainly the oil industry and those who extract oil through such rigs know about all this. And it was interesting, you know, at least for us, to see that there was no effort on behalf of BP to require an uh, acoustic shutoff valve, a device that obviously was available in the industry but uh, was voluntarily not used here.
1: Is there a cost factor?
2: There was a cost factor of $500,000. Now, I I could understand, you know, maybe if it's a shallow oil well where you can take care of the problem. There's not a lot of oil coming out of it. $500,000 might seem, you know, an extravagant expense, but on something... Uh, like the ten like billion
1: dollar liability. I, I mean, really, it's a cheap, it's like penny wise and pound foolish almost. You know. Well,
2: given what the consequences would be of any failure, why wouldn't you make certain that every safety device you could possibly put on there, you know, would would be placed? Five hundred thousand dollars is nothing in the scheme of what the cost in, uh, to operate that oil rig was. It's nothing in terms of what the uh, result would be it had that worked versus what we're going through right now.
1: You know, you said something a little while back. You mentioned spillers, plural. What do you think the factors are going to be to allocate liability among the parties?
2: They have BP, obviously, is, is, is the main player, and they have their own expertise with respect to oil rig and, and deep water drilling that everybody's going to be taking a look at. The mm-hmm. owner of the rig is somebody different, though, and, and they have their own responsibilities with respect to that oil, oil rig. And then you have Halliburton, who was an, involved with the installation of the rig as well. I'm quite certain those three parties, you know, could end up pointing the finger at one another down the road from a very practical standpoint, given the sizable claims that could happen. And I hope that the ultimate worst epic catastrophe is avoided. The the, the cost are, could be Amazing is, is we would have three months' worth of oil going into the Gulf of Mexico, and then eventually you know some of that oil is going to find its way into the um, deep water currents of the Gulf and then down through the Florida Straits. And unfortunately, if that happens, there's going to be some environmental significant environmental impact that will be grave to the uh, mangroves and to the uh, uh, coral reefs uh, down in, in the Keys. And then as the oil turns immediately up, north uh, past Miami and uh, Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach, which are some of the most wealthy areas in the entire Southeast United States. I mean, if we think there's been economic damage so far, think what would happen if that oil started finding its way up along the uh, beaches of Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and Palm Beach, the, the, the significance goes, goes up in multiples.
1: You know, we've moved now towards this, this property damage idea of liability how do you see the business interruption insurance issues playing out? You know, it, it took almost a decade for the environment to recover from Exxon Valdez, and to go back to pre-spill conditions. If there even ever really is a possibility for what it was like pre-spill, but at least an improvement. Assuming that the same holds true now, and you're looking at a really long period of recovery. How can business interruption losses for all the numerous industries involved here be calculated under under these business interruption insurance policies? Do you think we'll have the same sort of thing that we did in Katrina, where policyholders win a trial, but the Fifth Circuit comes down in favor of policy language?
2: Well, you know, it's funny you even talk about it. you. You've asked an awful lot of questions. Maybe <laughs> I could start off just from the procedural aspect of where you know this were were you know, to be. Um, the litigation, if we have an MDL, which in all likelihood we probably will, where where the case is going to be centered, I think many would be quite concerned that the Fifth Circuit, with a number of attorneys from Houston that work for law firms that are represented above the oil industry, would would be there. The Fifth Circuit has been no friend, obviously, to many insurance policyholders, at least the way we view the law, and there would probably be quite a strong push to. Um, see if, if the, the action could be centered in Florida, and with the appellate circuit being the 11th, which is fairly conservative as, as appellate circuits go with respect to insurance, but probably a, a little more friendly than what we would find in the, um, in the Fifth Circuit. Now, that's just based on looking at things and criticisms of others, and it's no disrespect to any jurist and their views, but you know, the, the truth of the matter is most policyholders do not like being in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for a number of reasons. Outside the procedural aspects, the insurance policies cover property damage. And while there is a form of policy that is fairly standard that actually covers for the extraction of oils from land and for those people that have uh, waterfront property or, or personal property, it would appear that there has been an explosion, which has caused a pollutant, assuming that oil is a pollutant. I'm not even going to concede that right now. We've been having debates about whether naturally occurring oil is a pollutant as defined in the in the insurance policy, because this is natural oil now that's escaped. There hasn't been any refinement to it. It's not gas or anything like that. So, But it, it, assuming that it is a pollutant with respect to, it being covered under a standard foreign policy, there would be some property damage to clean up or extract the oil from personal property and, and things like that, which then all of a sudden my friends start talking about business interruption claims that, well, even under that chip, what would happen if the oil hit some boat or crab pot? Maybe you can get a contingent business interruption claim as we start looking at it. Maybe the oil itself is not a pollutant. It's not excluded under a property insurance policy, you know as what my initial gut reaction would be before we really start digging heavily in into the policies the truth of the matter is though right now is that the oil has not struck any insured property as i know other than the oil well the oil rig itself that blew up and i read somewhere i think they got payment after 2 weeks which is amazing that that company get paid in 2 weeks most insurance companies you know don't get payment to their policyholders on homeowners' claims for two months. But be that as it may, there's going to be very large uh, disputes regarding whether or not there's physical damage to covered or insured property that would then generate a basis that, since we have damage to, to covered property, insured property, that then cause there to be business interruption damage to occur every single issue is going to be hotly debated including the causation because much of the causation going on right now is economic in the sense that fishermen can't go out and fish because of the concern that the uh, uh, regulatory bodies have that the fish might be get contaminated and things like that you don't drive your your boat around in oil anyway and then the cancellation as a result of tourism throughout the uh, northern Gulf Coast right now, even before the oil hits the seashore.
1: Well, how do you calculate damage?
2: Well, it's a lot easier. You calculate it like, a, you know, if it's a tort claim, it would be easy to go ahead and calculate. And, and I, frankly, I could do it in the business interruption claim, too. It's You get used to these after a while. But if you think of the spill of the oil as being something that now is generated uh, and the spill of the oil itself is actionable under the, under the oil pollution Act of 1990, those claims can be brought right now. The oil does not have to hit the property. Again, for economic damage under the National Act, the oil does not have to hit the property. I think some of the state causes of action, that might still be a big legal issue. In terms of proving up the business interruption claim, we've been giving a lot of specific advice back to our commercial clients about the importance of documenting the loss. And and that starts with, I'll I'll give an example, if you have a call-in center at a hotel uh, or or a restaurant or a condominium that sells or or rents out units, what happens at the call-in centers is extremely important. And an activity should be placed with respect to every single telephone call. When people call in and, and ask, is there oil on the beach, that should be recorded as a business record right on the spot that, potential callers are concerned about whether or not there's oil on the beach. And then what happens during that phone call? You know, I explain to them that, and and all these notes should be, I explain to them the oil's not here, we don't expect it to be here. And if you do anything such as provide extra incentive, that's a monetary incentive to somebody to come down here, you know, as a result of this, we're giving a 25% discount that's fully refundable for you to come down here because that giving of the discount is an extra expense. Or known as a mitigation under the federal act, that should be noted as a cost, and that should be because it's a reasonable mitigation effort reimbursed. It would be reimbursed under insurance policy as an extra expense, or it's going to be a claim of the mitigation expense against BP or the, whoever the responsible spillers are. The, those are very very important in terms of documenting exactly what the business is doing at the transactional level in order to show that there's attempts to mitigate and that customers are canceling on the basis of the concern of the oil out in the Gulf or not uh, signing contracts because of that all of which will go to help especially if businesses will then start sharing that information. I mean one of the things that we're adamant in our class action about is providing a leadership role in terms of getting them to businesses share this economic information so that an economist can start coming up and showing that this is a general trend, which we know it's just got to be a general trend, but through the proof that it's a general trend that's affecting uh, businesses across the board in these various uh, tourist areas.
1: You know, you've talked about spillers as defendants. What about this whole idea of the public trust doctrine and the governmental entities that permitted the offshore drilling in the first place? Do you think you can find a way to establish liability for the loss of the resources and the loss of the habitat and all of this under the public trust doctrine?
2: Well, you know, it's even anticipated under the Oil Pollution Act that these states and the federal government could eventually be sued, depending upon what their involvement is in, in terms of the you know their. Proper or improper method of of cleanup. Although most of the uh, act is really geared toward with an arrow pointed at the responsible spiller, which in this case I think most people, just for my client's benefit, would be pointed at BP. But we'll we'll let the facts fall as they might. But uh, I have heard some environmental individuals raise that question. I think it would be difficult um, (laughs) cause of action. it might it might be brought, but it's it's going to be a very very difficult cause of action, I think.
1: Well, it didn't go too far in the Levy breach cases in Katrina. No. I remember reading about those when they were first filed, and I thought that's a pretty interesting theory of liability, and, and I thought they had some pretty good factors to support that theory, but it went nowhere. And well,
2: and, and then you raise another very practical question. Why, why go create new law when you've got some pretty good law that exists on the books that we think we can go make a proof of right now that provides very broad definitions of who claimants might be, even very remote claimants, uh, with very indirect amounts of economic damage, which most people are going to have very um, remote economic damages in terms of of claimants, that the people that actually are, are directly most affected will be a lot easier, but doesn't mean that that's where it stops.
0: So no.
2: No. given that we've made a law that can work this way and that we can bust the caps with respect to um, showing gross negligence or willful misconduct, yeah. I think that's where we're going toward right now.
1: Um, just a, one more thing, you know we've we've covered the, the the insurance aspects of it mostly. We know insurance makes the world go round, but but this is also a very important environmental claim as well, not just a liability claim. How do you see the other implications under the Endangered Species Act here? And if so, what would the oil company's responsibilities be under the Endangered Species Act?
2: Boy I'm... I I tell you, um, Steve Medina, who helped draft our our complaint, uh, used to be a Florida DEP enforcement uh, attorney, and he was talking about the various types of acts, um, endangered species, um, any type of destruction to the habitat, and to any type of creature, especially now you start talking about the Florida Keys. They have those coral reefs down there. If that oil gets around and into that, and it's a very sensitive uh, marine environment, it doesn't take much from everything that I've read, and I've talked to a a few marine biologists, that they are definitely concerned about what might happen. could be significant liability upon um, BP for that. And the problem is there's no, you know, talk talk about a money remedy is not going to do anything. You can never bring... Once you kill something, you can't bring it back, which is a point. Some of what I was talking about in terms of belief, I think for the first time people start to understand, you know, how fragile it is, you know, in terms of our way of life, uh, especially for those of us who love to be on the water. You, you tend to take things for granted that you don't have. You'll have white beaches, you'll have animals, you'll have fish, you'll have the ability to go jumping and, and go uh, diving along coral reefs for as long as you want, just watching them and You have a tendency to take those things for granted, and I know I have in the past, and maybe a different mindset in terms of trying to protect those things because that's what makes life so different in the area that we love to live right here in the Gulf Coast.
1: That pretty much brings us full circle from where we started, so I think it's a really good place to stop. Are are there any other factors, any other things that you'd like to say at this initial stage in the litigation, in, in, in the catastrophe?
2: Yeah, I, I find it interesting just for myself, uh, it's just some personal experiences, because I, I lived in Waveland, Mississippi. I lived in Panama City, Florida. And of course, now, Tampa. when I was growing up as a kid, my father was in the Coast Guard. So we always lived along the water, and we were always on the water and things like that. My father was the commander at the rear admiral station in New Orleans for the Coast Guard and then actually helped start the operations for the MRSC, which that corporation is now out doing most of the um, recovery efforts of the oil right now out there, and he teaches oil spill cleanup and recovery for the state of Louisiana, and he's somewhere in Louisiana right now doing that. My sister is in the Coast Guard Reserve, and she's at the Emergency Operations Center now in Tallahassee working up there on various things, and, and it's amazing how much work has gone into, I know just because ever since Valdez happened, personally my family has been a discussion at the uh, dinner table in terms of the preparation for it, Yet at the same time, when I asked my father, I said, Dad, you know, what happens when the oil keeps coming up on the beach, not just one little time, but another, and it's still coming up week after week, you know, month after month, which is the possibility of what you're talking about as we get patchy oil up here. Like, should I be telling my clients that every single time it comes up, they should keep digging it out? Because they'll be digging a, 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 a you know, stand out all the way down to China at that rate. And when his eyes roll back, and he doesn't have the quick answer, you know. You can sort of tell that's a scenario that they're really not ready for. And I hope you and know, pray that uh, what's going on right now in terms of safety measures work, because if not, we got three months of oil. That is the epic scenario that we're going to have, and there is not an easy answer for it. And I think it's truly, you know, what a lot of the people who are doing environmental law, environmentalists, and those concerned have been talking about for such a long period of time is that If you do something like drill oil at the the rate we were doing so, it absolutely positively, no matter what, has got to have a 100% safety margin, and until you do that, you shouldn't do it at all.
1: Well, I thank you for, for the time that you've given us, sharing your extensive expertise in this area, Chip. I wish you all the best in terms of your representation on behalf of all of the people who stand to be injured with this and hope that we can talk again as the catastrophe unfolds and as the litigation progresses about how it all develops.
2: Well, and so it's, it's developing daily, so it will be my pleasure, and uh, thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis Communities Podcast. Visit the LexisNexis Communities at wwwlexisnexiscom community. The LexisNexis Communities Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, Total Practice Solutions.